Welcome to My Cousin Jane, a podcast about Jane Austen and her works, with your host, Lee Phelan. Welcome back to My Cousin Jane. Today we're going to be talking about Persuasion, Volume 2, Chapter 1. Now, some printings refer to this as chapter 13, but we'll stick with tradition and call it volume 2, chapter 1. But we're not talking about this like your English lit teacher might discuss it, but more like the behind the scenes and bonus features of your favorite movie. So, in this chapter, we have Anne back at Uppercross with the family, and they're all trying to decide how best to help Louisa. Everyone is beside themselves with worry and concern. And then Charles returns with some promising news about her progress on her recovery, and things calm down a little bit, and then we have some action resolved on. So let's listen to a quick clip here, where we find out one of the things that's going to take place. And as always, our audio clips come from the talented Karen Savage, courtesy of LibriVox.org. A chaise was sent for from Cricon, and Charles conveyed back a far more useful person in the old nurserymaid of the family. One who, having brought up all the children, and seen the very last, the lingering and long-petted Master Harry sent to school after his brothers, was now living in her deserted nursery to mend stockings and dress all the blains and bruises she could get near her, and who, consequently, was only too happy in being allowed to go and help nurse dear Miss Louisa. Vague wishes of getting Sarah thither had occurred before to Mrs. Musgrove and Henrietta, but without Anne it would hardly have been resolved on, and found practicable so soon. Thank goodness for Anne. Now, first of all, Crickern is a town. That's the town where they go to rent the chaise. And it's a little town in southwest Somersetshire, which was apparently close enough to Upper Cross that someone could drive over there and rent a chaise. So, speaking a little bit about Sarah's. So, in Regency times, parents of the upper class didn't spend much time with their children. At least not nearly as much time as in most families in our day. Babies were fed by wet nurses, and then they and young children were supervised by nannies. Nannies were assisted by nursery maids, and nursery maids were usually teenage girls. Sometimes they were the daughters of other household staff, or they could be local girls from the village or tenants, uh, daughters of tenants on the uh, family's land. And the most affluent families would have their older children looked after by a governess, and sometimes the governess would be employed full-time, sometimes only during the holidays. Sometimes the older children would be sent off to school. Most of the time, it was only the really wealthy families that would use a governess, and children were typically supervised by a nanny for most other cases and then sent off to school at some point. Now, I don't get the impression that the Musgroves were particularly affluent. I mean, they were probably pretty wealthy compared to your average tenant farmer, but not compared to, say, the Bertrams in Mansfield Park. I think that it's possible. That and, and you can kind of infer this given the fact what how their rank compared to the Elliot. So it's possible that Sarah was not just the nursery maid in the strictest sense, but also the head nanny, especially if she looked. It says in the text that she looked after Master Harry until he was sent off to school. So it would be weird to have a nanny and a nursery maid and have the nursery maid be in charge of an older child like that. So I think nursery maid here is just being used kind of as a generic term. Maybe they only had one woman who was looking after the children, and it was Sarah. And so they referred to her as a nursery maid. And we can make some interesting conjectures here. 
A nanny would be expected to have certain qualifications and to be paid at a certain level. A nursery maid would be considered kind of to have other sets of qualifications and be paid at a lower level. So it could be that Sarah was just all they could afford in terms of childcare. Maybe they really like Sarah. I don't know. But Sarah is probably the only one taking care of the children. Now, another interesting note here, especially for American listeners, is a description of what Sarah had been doing lately. It says that she'd been mending stockings and dressing all the blains and bruises she could get near her. Some of you may be more versed in medical lingo than I am, but blains or chillblains are a red inflammation that occurs on your skin in very cold air, most commonly on your toes. And I'd never heard of blains before until I was living in the UK and one of our children went to the doctor with some sore toes and she was diagnosed with blains. And I was like, what are blains? And they're like, oh, it's just cold toes. Fortunately, healthcare is free, so I didn't have to pay for the diagnosis of cold toes. Now, if you've heard the term COVID toes, this is an uncommon side effect of COVID-19, and it's another term for chillblains. So Sarah would have been treating people for their bruises and their blains. Cold toes was a common ailment in Regency-era times. So modern treatment for blains, pretty straightforward. Just make sure you're not vitamin B deficient. Soak your feet in warm water and Epsom salt until they feel better. But in Nurse Sarah's days, they probably would have used the remedy prescribed in Bald's Leech Book or kind of passed down from generation to generation, originally coming from Bald's Leech Book, which was a medieval text about different remedies for common ailments. And it prescribed for blains a mixture of eggs, wine, and fennel root. I'm assuming you soak your feet in that and you don't drink it. All right, so another thing that takes place in this chapter is that after Anne and Lady Russell are together for a while, Lady Russell decides she needs to go to Kenneth Hall to pay a call on the cross. And they go there, and during the visit, Anne is reflecting on the difference it makes to having the crofts in Kenneth Hall compared to her own family. So let's listen to this clip. At the end of that period, Lady Russell's politeness could repose no longer, and the fainter self-threatenings of the past became in a decided tone, I must call on Mrs. Croft. I really must call upon her soon. Anne, have you courage to go with me and pay a visit in that house? It will be some trial to us both. Anne did not shrink from it. On the contrary, she truly felt as she said in observing, I think you are very likely to suffer the most of the two. Your feelings are less reconciled to the change than mine. By remaining in the neighbourhood, I am become inured to it. She could have said more on the subject, for she had in fact so high an opinion of the Crofts, and considered her father so very fortunate in his tenants, felt the parish to be so sure of a good example and the poor of the best attention and relief, that, however sorry and ashamed for the necessity of the removal, she could not but in conscience feel that they were gone who deserved not to stay, and that Kellynch Hall had passed into better hands than its owners. All right, so I want to talk a minute about this comment that Anne makes about the poor benefiting from the best attention and relief because the Crofts were there. Now, in the early 1600s, there were a series of laws established known as the Poor Laws that were created by Parliament. And there was a lot of nuance to these laws and a bunch of revisions made over the years. But the general idea was that the Poor Laws, and these were known as the Old Poor Laws, said that the parish was responsible for caring for its own poor. And that system of Poor Laws lasted through a bunch of different forms up until the end of World War I, when centralized government welfare kind of took over in its place. Now, uh, in case we haven't mentioned this yet, I can't remember if we have, a parish is like the smallest level of local government in England. 
And it can mean something slightly different if we're talking about ecclesiastical terms, like what it means in the Church of England compared to what it means in government. But since in Regency-era England, there was a lot of overlap between church governance and civil governance, then we have kind of this unified term of parish, meaning this local area of governance, whether it's at a church level or a civil level. The parish leadership would be composed of kind of differently from area to area. Sometimes it might simply be the largest landowner was the de facto leader in the area or the highest ranking nobleman. Or another times it might be a council of smaller landowners or lower ranking landowners that would get together to vote on things. Though among other things, they were responsible for appointing what were called overseers of the poor. So their job was to figure out just how many of what were called the impotent poor there were in the parish. So the impotent poor were people who were poor through no fault of their own, either through injury or disability or some other reason, and they wanted to work but couldn't. So they would then calculate how much relief they needed and compare that to how well they expected the harvest to do that year. And they'd use those figures to determine the parish's poor rate or poor tax, which would be leveled on all property owners and tenants in the parish. And then that money would be used to support the poor of the parish. So the impotent poor were distinguished from what were called the idle poor, which were people who were considered poor due to their own desire to avoid work. Sometimes people would kind of derisively refer to the idle poor as the undeserving poor. And you can see this if you watch My Fair Lady. Eliza Doolittle's father refers to himself as the undeserving poor, and he, go, he plans to go on remaining undeserving. So the idle poor uh, were people who were considered poor because they didn't want to work rather than because they couldn't work. So they were not given access to funds and resources provided by the poor rate. And proponents of the law saw that local administration was kind of the major benefit because parishes at the time were small enough that everyone kind of knew everyone else who lived there. It would be pretty easy for someone to say, oh, well, Bob here, he's poor because he broke his leg, but Steve is poor because he just hates farming. And so tough luck, Steve. But this became increasingly difficult as population increased pretty exponentially over time. And there were some other aspects of this law that were looked upon pretty negatively by most people, but positively by others, things like the creation of works houses that we'll discuss in a future episode, as well as almshouses, which we'll discuss in just a couple episodes from now. Though regardless of whether you think welfare should be handled at the local or national level, uh, in Regency-era England, it was handled at the parish level, and Anne felt that the Crofts would do a better job of that than her father which is understandable considering her father was deeply in debt and had to rent out his own house in order to make ends meet. Not exactly the person you want uh, in charge of the financial management of those who are less fortunate. And even beyond what was required by the poor law, the prevailing belief at the time, which was reinforced through church teachings, was that those who were well off, those members of the upper class and the gentry, had a natural God-given obligation to assist the poor. And this was something that many Regency-era landowners, and their wives and daughters especially, took very seriously. And this practice and belief began to wane considerably as we get into uh, later Victorian times, especially as industrialization starts to take hold and force. And philosophers and government leaders in the mid-1800s were trying to think of new ways to uh, deal with rather than help the poor, which they thought was helping but was really kind of dealing with. It was kind of a more punitive approach. 
And this led to the Poor Law Amendment of 1834, which really won't affect anything in Austin's writings. But it's just interesting that this happened because this was known as the New Poor Law. And Charles Dickens was a major critic of many of these changes. And you can see that uh, they kind of formed a theme of his writings in things like Oliver Twist and The Christmas Carol, among others, his criticisms of many of the aspects of the New Poor Law. And there was also a difference in culture between the north of England and the south of England about the interactions between the gentility and the lower classes. And you can see something of this in uh, Margaret Hale's kind of awkward conversation with Higgins and Bessie in Elizabeth Gaskell's North and South. And it's kind of played up a little more in the BBC movie version than it is in the book, but it's still pretty interesting. You can tell there's a little bit of awkwardness there in in what uh, Margaret thinks her responsibility is to the poor compared to what the poor are kind of expecting or willing to accept from Margaret. I just want to end today's episode with one of my favorite quotes from Persuasion. Uh, This is Admiral Croft talking to Anne about the changes he's made to Kenneth Hall and whether she likes his changes or would prefer her own ways. And so this is just a fun quote. Aye, so it always is, I believe. One man's ways may be as good as another's, but we all like our own best. Well, that wraps up our discussion of Persuasion Volume 2, Chapter 1. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to help support the show, please head over to leefalencom slash mycousinjane, sign up for our newsletter, or click on the little donate button. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening.